When I say the word family, I wonder what comes to your mind. What, what memories, what images flood your mind when I say the word family? For many of us, our family is a reminder of God's goodness to us. We recall the love and investment of our parents, the close friendships of our siblings, family vacation, joy of holidays, a table full of laughter, and so on. But for others in this room, I suspect, when I say the word family, what floods your mind isn't joyful, but painful, a broken marriage, lackluster parental love, Sibling conflict, personal failure, wayward children. Perhaps some in this room have suffered some sort of trauma at the hands of family members that you thought you could trust. Not too long ago, one of our dear members of the church texted the elders and said, I'm overwhelmed when I think of the sin in my family's history. I wonder if you could empathize with this person. Maybe you look back at your family tree and it just seems like all the branches are broken. You see generations of sin and dysfunction and you wonder, is there any hope for me? The reality of living in this world is that often our greatest joys and our deepest pain intersect in the same place. We receive the blessing of God's good gifts like our family, and yet we receive God's good gifts in a broken and fallen world that groans under the curse of sin. Those that we love the most can hurt us the most, and we in turn often hurt the most those whom we love the most. And yet even if what flooded your mind's eye at the mention of the word family was painful, I pray, friends, that what arises in your heart isn't despair or bitterness or anger or shame. Because what we find in the Bible is not a collection of pristine characters with beautiful family portraits. Be encouraged by that. We don't encounter figures who all have their act together completely and families untarnished by the life in a fallen world. Instead, we find just the opposite. The Bible's central figures, even those among the people of God, are often beset by serious sin and own a family history that would make you blush. And yet as we read the Bible, we discover that the biggest failures and the grimiest messes don't derail God's plan of redemption. In fact, what we see is a God so sovereign that He even uses the sinful actions of man to accomplish His purpose to save while not at all becoming an accomplice to sin or tempting the sinner. Friends, today we run across such a family in our text of Scripture. An objective onlooker would call this family dysfunctional at the very least. They'd say that this family is pretty messed up and broken and they would be right. And yet when we shift our eyes from the story to the horizon of history, and we see what God was up to, we come to understand was that, that God was at work the entire time working out His plan to send a Redeemer, working out His plan to send us a Rescuer, to save broken, messed up sinners like them and like us. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 27. Genesis 27, I believe it's around page 21 of the Bible underneath your seats. I forgot to write it down, forgive me. Toward the beginning, Genesis chapter 27. If you're new to Christianity, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Those big numbers inside the Bible are what we call chapters, and the small numbers are what we call verses. So we're going to look at Genesis 27, 
the big number today. And again, it's around page 21 of your Bible. Last week, we left off with the birth and the early life of Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Remember, surprisingly, the Lord declared that the older twin, Esau, contrary to all expectation, would serve the younger, Jacob. God in his sovereign freedom set his love on Jacob, not Esau. He chose to unfold his saving promises through the line of the younger, not the older, so that his purpose of election might stand, as Paul wrote, so that God might be glorified for his free mercy displayed to Jacob before the boys had even been born, before either, either one of them had done anything good or bad. And then, of course, we saw at the end of chapter 25 that Esau, the older, trashed his birthright. He trashed his inheritance as the firstborn. He sold it for a bowl of red stew cooked up by his conniving younger brother. Esau's cravings far outweighed the promises of God in his mind. Just as God has promised, Jacob would receive the inheritance, and yet Esau was entirely responsible for his sinful actions. Now, some of you may see my sermon text this morning and might have noticed that it doesn't appear to include chapter 26. Normally, we just go right through chapters of the Bible. This chapter is not unimportant, okay? It's not merely filler, but I'm not going to preach a full sermon on it because what happens in chapter 26 is like a deja vu of two incidents in Abraham's life that we've already looked at in Genesis. Isaac falls into the same type of sin as his father did. A famine drove Isaac to sojourn in the land of the Philistines, and out of fear for his life, just like Abraham did, he lied about the identity of his wife, Rebekah, saying that she was his sister, not his wife. Abraham had done the same thing with Sarah, if you remember, in Egypt and in Gerar with Abimelech. And yet, just as with Abraham, chapter 26 is full of these evidences of God's un. Uh, merited grace to Isaac, free grace that Isaac did not earn. In fact, I think the reason that this, is, this account, friends, is positioned, it's sandwiched in between chapter 25 and chapter 27, isn't necessarily because it's in chronological order. I don't know that it is. But because Moses wants to, to, us to see these riches and wealth and blessing that Isaac accumulated through God's blessing to him. Look, just scan over verse 12 of chapter 26 and you'll see what Isaac accumulated. You can start to understand why in chapter 27, the twins so coveted the blessing of their father. He was a wealthy man. It followed in the train of the blessing of Abraham. It included immense wealth and prosperity. The rest of chapter 26 is about a dispute between the Philistines and Isaac's herdsmen about a well. And again, the Lord proves that he is with Isaac. He's with him. He's blessing him. There's no need for him to be afraid because the God of Abraham is his God also. And that brings us to our text this morning, which we're going to start in verse 34 of chapter 26. And we're going to read down through the end of chapter 27 and into 28. Let's read this story, the continuing story of Jacob and Esau. Verse 34 of chapter 26, When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here am I. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. 
Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke his, to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the, uh, before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them, uh, from them delicious food for your father such as he loves." And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my, bro my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I, I shall seem to be uh, mocking him, and to bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game so that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, that I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. And he said, Your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. 
Then he came, uh, then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and, and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword ye shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his, his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, free to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of, of you both in one day? This is the word of the Lord. Friends, in case you didn't notice, a nuclear bomb of deception and conflict just detonated within Isaac's family. His family would never be the same. It splintered before our very eyes in this account. I think the question that we should be asking at this point of the, of the story is this, does the fracturing of Isaac's family mean the fracturing of God's promises? Is his purpose to bring salvation to the world falling apart along with Isaac's family? And of course, it takes knowing the rest of the story to give an answer to this question, but we can say definitively, no way, not even this hot mess of a family could derail the promises of God. I think the main idea of our text is this. Your sin and your family's brokenness cannot derail God's gracious plan. Your sin and your family's brokenness cannot derail God's gracious plan. Two points this morning. One from the text itself and one from the rest of the story. Number one, a family unravels. And number two, the Lord reigns. A family unravels, the Lord reigns. I'm going to do something a bit differently than I normally do this morning. Under this first point, I'm going to make several sub-points. Normally I don't do that, and I'm going to do it in a, a bit of an interesting way to catch your attention this morning. We're going to walk step-by-step through the unraveling of Isaac's family. I'm going to frame it like this. How to unravel your family in seven easy steps. Number one, love your children because of what they can do for you. For this point, we need to flip back to chapter 25, verses 27 to 28. The seeds of disaster for this family were planted back then. Look at verse 27 of chapter 25. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because... He ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. How incredibly sad. 
We saw last week in, in, in chapter 25 that Esau threw away his birthright to satisfy his appetite, but he must have learned those instincts somewhere. And I think he learned them from his dad. Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because he ate of his game. Isaac's affection was disposed toward Esau because of what Esau could do for him. Esau scratched the itch for Isaac. Isaac liked tasty food and Esau could provide it. Friends, how far of a cry is this from what we discovered last week about our God who loves us because He loves us. God doesn't love us for what we can do for Him, but because we are His. His love is based on the relationship, not our performance. But that doesn't seem to be the case with Isaac. His love seems to be inherently warped. His self-focused love drove a wedge between him and his wife. Did you see that? Isaac loved Esau, but, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We're not told why she loved him. Perhaps we could charitably believe that Rebekah loved Jacob because she understood God's promise that Jacob would be the one to carry on the blessing. Maybe that's why. Maybe she reacted against uh, Isaac's favoritism of Esau and, and, and leaned toward Jacob. Maybe she liked Jacob's more domestic tendencies than Esau's rugged ones. We don't know. But what's clear is that Isaac loved Esau because of what Esau could do for him. Parents, you would never do this, right? Your love for your child would never ebb and flow based on how your child behaves or the affection that your child chose for you. You'd never pick a favorite, right? Because of what your child likes. He or she likes what you like, enjoys the hobbies and the sports you enjoy. You'd never want love one child above the other because his or her work ethic reflects your own. His or her academic success is more in line with what you'd expect. Surely you'd never try to live vicariously through your children's achievement. You wouldn't withhold love from one child because of the mess they've made of their life while granting it eagerly to his or her successful sibling. Oh friend, few of us would ever say out loud that we do this. But my guess is that more of us than would like to admit it battle this tendency in our hearts. Love conditioned upon what our child can do for us rather than unconditional love based on the relationship alone. Friends, this type of self-centered, faux, fake love will reveal itself over time. Your spouse will see it and eventually your kids will too. So see the example of Isaac and be warned. Ask God for grace to kill your selfishness and love your kids with the type of love that God has lavished so fully and freely upon you. Number two, the second step to unravel your family, elevate your personal desires above God's Word. We see this in both Esau and Isaac's life. Look at verse 34. What did Esau do? He took Hittite wives he married Canaanites. So little did Esau regard God's word, his promise of judgment upon the Canaanites. So little did Esau think of God's word that he not only married one Canaanite wife, but two. Esau was dominated by his desires, not God's word. Just like with the red stew, 
He, took, he saw what he wanted and he took it without any regard for God in the equation at all. But then notice, we see the same thing of Isaac in chapter 27. The first hint of the coming deception is given to us in verse 1, right? Isaac was blind. His sight had grown dim. He couldn't see. But I think this physical blindness is almost like a metaphor for his spiritual blindness, the dimming of his spiritual wits and instincts. Still, years later, Isaac's heart is still set on his older son and still focused upon what Esau could do for him. And so he instructs Esau to go out to the field and hunt game and prepare delicious food and bring it to him so that, so that I may bless you before I die, Isaac says. Now, besides Isaac's self-focus, what's the problem here? What's the problem here in the story? Isaac, or yeah, Isaac should not be offering Esau the blessing in the first place. Surely, surely Isaac knew God's word to Rebekah. The older will serve the younger. He knew that God's favor was disposed toward Jacob, not Esau. Yet Isaac turned a blind eye to God's word. He elevated his desires over the promises. He was dead set on blessing his favorite son. Friends, this is a ready-made kit for personal and family ruin. Parents, how prevalent is the presence of God's Word in the life of your family? How committed are you to live by it, even when it cuts across the grain of your personal desires? When biblical priorities of love for Jesus above all, a deep and abiding commitment to His church intersect with your desires and your plans and your schedule, who wins? What does your family calendar teach your kids about the priority of God's Word? Does it teach them that the church's worship and prayer and members' meetings are all important? Unless something comes up that sounds really fun, then we'll do that instead. Does it teach them that serving others is great? Unless you're busy, then you don't have to serve others. Does it teach them that life-on-life community discipleship is a really big deal in the New Testament? Unless you're just too tired, then it's okay. You can kind of let that go. Oh, friend, I'm not asking these questions to produce some sort of moralistic legalism to to beat you over the head. We as elders want to stay clear from this kind of heavy-handed and rigid, uh, rigid application of the truth. But I am asking these questions to probe. Does your family calendar teach your kids about the priority of the Word of God? What does your conversations with your kids reflect about your love for God's Word? Your goals for them, your dreams for them. What do those teach them about the priority that the Bible lays out for them? Oh, friend, do not lose sight of God's promises. This type of drift away from God does not happen overnight. It's the slow and steady drift. God's Word over time begins to have less and less of a hold on your life and your heart's affections and your priorities until you get to the place that, like Isaac, your desires are just completely out of step with what God's desires are. Beloved, this is why the local church is so vital, so vitally important. 
This is why being known in Christ-centered relationships with your brothers and sisters is so necessary. Why? Because our hearts are prone to wander. Because we're so easily duped and we so easily stray. We have blind spots like Isaac where we need to be corrected and exhorted. We need brothers and sisters in our life who love Jesus enough to speak truth and love to us when we get off course. To grab us tenderly and firmly by the proverbial collar and say, no, you don't. No. We need godly friends who not only encourage us, but warn us and rebuke us if necessary. We need the church. Friend, a step toward the unraveling of your family is to elevate your personal desires above God's word. Look at, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Rebecca now enters the scene. She overheard Isaac's instruction to Esau and his intent to give him the blessing, and then she sprang into action. Even though Jacob was the one who would carry out the deception, we know that Rebecca was like the chess master, but moving the pieces into place behind the, the scenes. She was the one pulling the strings. Now, before we go further, let me just explain briefly the difference between the birthright and the blessing. Okay, this is foreign to our thinking, so it's, it's challenging to understand. First of all, there, there is some overlap in the ideas. Even the words themselves play on one another. Birthright is the Hebrew word bekorah and blessing berakah. Okay, you can even see that play of words very similar to one another. The birthright that Esau gave away in chapter 25 pertained to his inheritance of Isaac's possessions. It's the type of thing that a child might still covet from a parent today, right? What is my place in my father's inheritance? However, the blessing isn't so much the inheritance itself, but the father's projection of what the offspring will obtain in this life. Okay? So, but however, as we're going to see, it's bound by an oath. It's irrevocable and does express the intent of the father to bless the son. So the birthright and the blessing overlap, but they are not exactly the same thing. Okay? Clear as mud? Okay. Let's be sure of one thing. Rebecca judged the situation correctly. She did. She remembered God's word to her that Jacob would carry on the line of promise. She knew that God's blessing to Abraham down to Isaac would now continue to Jacob, not Esau. And therefore, Isaac was wrong. His purpose should have lined up with God's purpose, but it didn't. She saw things correctly. But what did she do? She decided to take matters into her own hands and she concocted this plan of deception rather than trusting the Lord and doing what is right. What do you think Rebecca should have done in that moment? What should she have done? <laughs> yeah, talk to her husband. I believe that she should have gone into Isaac and said something to the effect of, honey, I heard what you said to Esau. It's not in line with what God told us so many years ago that his blessing would continue through Jacob, that Jacob's line would bear the promise on into the future, that he's the recipient of God's grace. Babe, I, I please can reconsider what you're doing. It's not right. That would have been the actions of a godly wife who fears God. Trust in the Lord and do good. Leave it in the Lord's hands. Instead, and pray. Instead, Rebecca trusted in her own powers of manipulation and did evil. So great was Rebecca's folly. I see just a, a trifecta of steps that contributed to the unraveling of the family. These are number three to five if you're counting in the seven easy steps. No, number four, 
think, or number, number three, right? <laughs> number three, think that the end justifies the means. Number four, pit your children against your spouse. Number five, entice your children to sin. Rebecca's aim was right. Her actions were dead wrong. And we can only assume that she somehow justified the means of tricking her blind husband because she thought that her end goal was righteous. But friends, our ethical system is not based on pragmatism. The end does not justify the means if the means are ungodly. It's never right to do wrong in order to see right accomplished. We live by the truth, not merely by what works. How many churches are governed by this type of philosophy today? Church growth is the end. We'll do whatever's necessary to see that growth attained. We'll design our worship services for unbelievers to enjoy rather than for the edification and building up of the saints. We'll water down the preaching. We'll create a worship experience like none other. But slowly, but surely, the focus drifts from the glory of God and the priority of truth to the growth of the church and the priority of an experience. Friend, we must not fall prey to the sin of self-justification and pragmatism. It's not godly to lie about your income taxes, for instance, in order to put your family into a better financial position. It's not right to forge your resume in order to get a better job to provide for your family. The end does not justify the means. And yet, the most devastating thing about Rebecca's sin is that she involved her child she involved her child to accomplish her intent. And in doing so, she pitted Jacob against his dad. And by pitting her child against her spouse, she enticed him to sin. It's devastating. Parents, when you and your spouse have a conflict, I'm doing a lot of work with parents today. This, this passage calls for it. I know it's a little bit unusual, the amount. Parents, when you have a conflict with your spouse, I know you never would, you compound your sin when you bring your children into it. When you complain about your spouse to your children. When you degrade your spouse to your children. When you try to manipulate your children to come to your side of the conflict. Oh friends, see the devastation wrought in Rebecca's family and don't fall into her sin. Obviously, the goal is not to have conflict in marriage. I get it. But when it arises, it's a godly instinct to shield your kids from it. Work through the problem behind closed doors. Keep a united front. Be each other's defender, not each other's prosecutor in front of your kids. Look how hardened Rebecca is in this ploy. In verse 11 and 12, Jacob rightly points out, well, how's this scheme going to work? My brother's like a hairy beast, right? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a smooth man. The word smooth may be a double entendre, by the way. The word smooth is used other places in the Bible to describe deceitful words and actions. Jacob was a smooth operator in more ways than one. But look how Rebekah responds in verse 13. Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So settled was Rebekah in her sin that she was willing to invoke the curse on herself. It reminds me of a mob in Jerusalem. 
the response to Pontius Pilate when, when Pilate washed his hands of his actions of releasing Barabbas and crucifying Jesus. The mob cried, cried out, what? His blood be on us and upon our children. Rebecca was just entrenched in her deceit, even to her own spiritual harm. Friends, maybe you're wondering, why is Pastor John preaching this text like a warning? Why, why is he focusing on the sinful actions of these figures and then drawing out these applications? Because I, meant, I, think, I think this text is meant to warn us. After this whole event, when Jacob flees for his life, as far as we know, Rebecca never saw him again. Her beloved son never saw him again. In fact, after this incident, she passes off the scene of the Bible entirely. We never hear from her again. At the end of chapter 35, Jacob returns to bury Isaac, but we hear nothing of Rebekah. She leveraged her son against her husband, and she lost her family. And then there's Jacob. Although he submitted to the wiles of his mother, he is an active participant in the deception. Number six, the sixth step to unravel your family, lie to get what you want. And this is for parents and kids and singles alike. How to unravel your life, how to unravel your family, lie to get what you want. Verse 14 says that Jacob took the two young goats and brought them to his mother and his mother prepared delicious food such that his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goats. He put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. She put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau. Your firstborn, I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my, my game that your soul may bless me. Here's line number one. Here's line number one. No longer is Jacob able to just deceive Isaac by his clothes and his hairy hands and his hairy neck. In order to keep up the charade, now he has to lie straight to his face. He exploits the trust innate between a father and his son for his personal gain. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Lie number two. Now, not only does Jacob have to lie again in order to keep up the ruse, he makes God an accomplice to his deception. It's wicked. He's on the doorstep of blasphemy at this point. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Lie number three. Now that Isaac is suspicious, the formerly loquacious Jacob gets real quiet, doesn't he? Just two words. I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. Deception 
through a kiss. Then there's this blessing. We read it earlier. We won't take time to read it again. As you can see, this blessing is both material possession and stature in the earth. Isaac asked for nothing less than universal sovereignty for his son so that the peoples and the nations bow down to him. This clearly builds on God's promise to Abraham that kings will be among his descendants, ultimately the Messiah. You can hear the overtones of the Abrahamic covenant there at the end. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. We've heard that before. Friends, Jacob received the blessing, but he lied to get what he wanted. He lied to his blind father and he cheated his older brother. And then there's this drama in verse 30 to the rest of the chapter. Isaac, he barely finished blessing Jacob when the real Esau, he barely finished blessing Esau when the real Esau arrived back to the house. Verse 30 gives the idea that Jacob had just left the room when Esau arrived back. Esau is oblivious to Jacob's deception. He brings this tasty game to his father. And that's when Isaac finally understands what had happened. His father said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your, your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently. Whether it was rage or sorrow, Isaac's reaction to the news was just visceral. But his emotional reaction did not make him take back the blessing that he had made to Jacob. Did you notice that? Look at Esau's reaction. Before he had treated his birthright so passively, but now he's enraged that he has lost the blessing. Verse 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Apparently Esau forgot that he had just sold his birthright for nothing before. But he's blaming the deceit of his brother. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants with grain and wine. I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Friends, here's step number seven in how to unravel your family. It's also a way to destroy your life. Seek God's blessing without seeking God. Esau's lament was merely superficial. He wasn't lamenting his trivializing of God's promises and his scoffing at God's word. He lamented the lost blessing. He wanted what God could give him, but he did not want God. Beloved, this is the mark of an idolater, not a worshiper of God. Worshippers come to God for God. Idolaters come to God only for what they can get from him. Esau is an ancient prosperity theologian. He wants the health and the wealth, but he does not want God. 
Listen to Hebrews commentary on Esau in chapter 12, verse 15. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Friends, understand the it that Esau sought was not repentance. He didn't seek repentance with tears, and for some unknown reason in the cosmos, God rejected him. No, he, as, as Genesis 27 shows us and the rest of Genesis, he sought the blessing with tears, not repentance. He sought the blessing. He did not seek God. This point isn't debatable. Esau's unrepentance is writ large with his actions. Verse 41 says that Esau com committed to kill Jacob. Right? That's not the mark of a humble, a humble man when he's wronged. That's the mark of a pride-filled man, a hateful, bitter man. Esau is like Cain. He's on the serpent side. Even in his marrying a woman from the family of Ishmael, look, look down at chapter 28, verses 6 to 9. He finally understands that Isaac and Rebekah favor Jacob because Jacob is not going to marry the Canaanite women, that they're displeased with him. And so he decides, well, I'm going to marry in the clan somehow. And he goes and marries a child of Ishmael. His motive was simply to gain the approval of his dad. He had no orientation toward the Lord. Friends, whatever sorrow we see here from Esau is worldly grief. It's not godly grief. To use Paul's terminology... It wasn't grief that produced repentance to salvation. It was grief that produced death. Friend, please don't be like Esau. Listen, friend without Jesus, listen to me. If you seek God's blessing without ever seeking God, it's a one-way street to hell. It's a street with a dead end in judgment. But if you'll turn from your sin to Jesus, you will find ample place to repent. God will not ever turn away those with a broken and contrite spirit. Don't think that God is somehow pushing away the contrite. That is not how He does it. He welcomes those with a broken and contrite heart. In response to Esau's plea for blessing, we're about done with the, the story in response to Esau's plea for blessing, Isaac, look, does invoke a word over Esau in verses 39 and 40. But instead of a blessing, it's almost like an anti-blessing. Did you notice that? Esau will dwell away from the fatness of earth and the dew of heaven. And indeed, he did. The Edomites lived in a red, rocky, dry place, not the fertile land of Canaan. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. At this point, I think finally, Isaac clicked back into gear spiritually. Finally. He finally understood that he needed to stop kicking against God's plan for his children. And so he invoked the very thing over Esau that the Lord had proclaimed at the beginning. You shall serve your brother. Verse 41, now... Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. 
In the rest of the account, Rebekah again discovers ill intent against Jacob, and she instructs Jacob, get out of town, man. Go to Padam Aram, to my brother Laban. And then in the opening verses of chapter 28, Isaac invokes the Abrahamic blessing over Jacob, and he sends him away, and he instructs him, don't marry among the Canaanites like your brother did. Friend, what a head-spinning mess. What a tragic picture of a family ravaged by sin and selfishness. And this is the family that bore God's promise for the world? If that's the case, is there any hope for the world? Point number two, much more brief. The family unraveled, but the Lord reigns. Friends, God's good plan was that the older should serve the younger. His plan was always to bless Jacob and not Esau. So does that mean that God approved of Rebekah and Jacob's deception? Absolutely not. Does that mean that God tempted them toward lying in order to accomplish His purpose? By no means. But what it does mean is that God's plan that He worked out included the sinful choices of Rebekah and Jacob. God is sovereign over sinful choices and circumstances while not the author or approver of sin. How do I know this? Because we see it over and over again in the Bible. Remember Joseph. Remember Joseph's brothers intended evil against him, but God meant, intended those very sinful actions to bring about good to save Israel. The greatest deception of all time, we read earlier, the betrayal of Jesus Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. A little later, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. That sounds familiar. Judas would be held responsible for his betrayal, but Jesus would die as it was written of Him. God can use even human deception and wickedness to accomplish His redemptive plan. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to the crowd, Jesus of Nazareth delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In other words, God can use human deception and wickedness and often does to accomplish his redemptive plan. The Lord reigns. Even in the wake of Jacob's trickery, what did he do? He fled to his uncle's house in these succeeding chapters where he would eventually marry Laban's two daughters over the course of several years, Leah and Rachel, who would bear Jacob 12 sons, including a son named Judah, from whom the line of Jesus the Christ would spring. The Lord reigns. Friends, as much as I want to warn you away from the type of sinful folly in your personal and family life that we see in Isaac's family, as much as I don't want you to screw things up, I want to encourage you this morning that your best efforts to mess up your life do not outrun the mercy and sovereignty of the Lord. He's at work even in your mess. He can bring beauty out of ashes. 
He can bring light and hope out of the darkness through the gospel of a crucified and risen Savior. So don't despair. Don't think, don't think that because your family is a, is a disaster that there's no hope for you. Don't think that your sin has to define you. That your family patterns have to, has to define you. God is greater than that. He's more powerful than that. The Spirit of God dwells in you if you're His. Now look at Jacob. Look at the man who eventually will be renamed Israel. Look at the ancestors in our Savior's line and ask yourself, is God still in control? He works His purposes through sinners, even using sinful circumstances and choices to accomplish His good purpose. He works all things together for good. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would once again today just bow before your purposes, before your sovereignty, and just stand in awe and worship you that even in our best efforts to mess things up, you still reign. Father, we trust you that if you did not withhold your own son from like this, how, like this, how shall you not with him graciously give us all things? How will you not work everything out for good to the, for, for those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose? Oh, Father, as much as we want to be warned against the, away from the sin of, of this family, we understand that at the end of the day, we do not hold ourselves close to you. You hold us close to you. So remind us of this, we pray. Remind us of your grace and your goodness. And I pray that there's anyone here that has listened to this sermon and they just, they, they're tempted to be filled with shame and despair because of their own sin, because of their family's sin. Father, if they haven't repented, help them to repent and, and once again come and lay it down at the foot of the cross. But if it's in the past, Father, help them to leave it in the past and realize they're not defined by it. They're not marked by that any longer. They're defined by their relationship to you. They're a child of God. They're a child of the high King of heaven, covered with the righteousness of the Savior. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.